Good morning, everybody. Uh, on this uh, Memorial Day weekend, so grateful for <clears throat> all of our active and veterans, active duty and veterans. Could you stand for a moment and let us just give you a round of applause? Active duty and veterans. Beth and I are, we have four children. Our second born, Jeremy, is active with the Air Force, stationed at Scott Air Force Base in St. Louis. Uh, we love him. He's making a career out of his role. And uh, so we just appreciate all of you. We have a, another, uh, not military, but an officer who looks out for us here. Every Sunday, Officer Al comes and makes sure we're all in good health and safety, and today's his birthday. He's out. He doesn't need, know I'm even talking about him, but we honored him in our early morning gathering with the volunteers, and um, somebody went out and vandalized his car with birthday bling. Can you believe their impertinence? I told him when I was out there, I said, you know, I think that might be an arrestable offense. So um, we do appreciate our military and our police force looking out for our best interests, taking care of us, don't we? Don't we appreciate them? <clears throat> I'm very grateful to live in a country that has honored these men and women who serve and make it easy for us to live in safety. I go to bed at night feeling pretty safe. And uh, that I appreciate. Thank you, Nathan, for the introduction. You're always so kind to me. I uh, love Nathan and Caitlin. Uh, their service to you as a church, it's been my privilege. Buck Waters is on our board too. Sam German, who's taking care of everybody coming through these doors. He's out there standing in the back making sure uh, that you can find a seat. So these are the board members, and it's such an honor to serve this church and be a part of what God is doing on the beach. I, I'm, I'm honored to do that. It's so much fun. <clears throat> well, we recently did a series here. Pastor Nathan did a series on the kingdom of God, and when he asked me to speak this weekend, I decided to kind of continue on that theme, even though we've moved on to another uh, series. Um, so this is kind of a one-off, but attached to a series we finished recently. And I wanted to focus on uh, its origins, the origins, at least not in God's mind and in his, in his uh, existence, but in our experience, the origins of God's rule, his kingdom in Genesis. And we're going to touch on uh, some of its completion in the book of Revelation. So we're going to go all the way through the Bible today. So Put on your seat belts. We're going to be here all afternoon. So the kingdom of God basically is, you know, that doesn't work real well for us in Western America, at least England gets it, and Spain and a couple other European kingdoms, they get it. Uh, but Americans, you know, we, we don't really quite get the idea of kingdom. Our government is a different structure, and we don't have kings and queens. Uh, but basically it means the rule of God. So it's less defined by a specific place, and it's more defined by an actual authority and rulership. So God, the rule of God, it's good for us to understand the kingdom of God. It kind of 
kind of puts pers some perspective on our own experiences, especially when we go through challenges and difficulties, we often question, is God really in control, you know? Is he there? So the kingdom, kingdom rule of God, as it's revealed in scripture and as we experience it in scripture, especially even starting in, in Genesis, and we're gonna read particularly Genesis chapter two today, most of the chapter, it reminds us, number one, that God is good and that he really is in control of all things, even when things go wrong, which happened in Genesis chapter 3. And God, even despite the fact that things go wrong, he is in control and he's moving history forward according to his plan. Genesis reminds us of this. It reminds us, too, that the world had a wonderful beginning, and it's progressing even towards a more wonderful conclusion or completion. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 2. I think if you have your Bible, we're going to start in verse 17, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If you don't, I think they're going to throw some things up on the screen. But reading in Genesis chapter 2, it says this, Then the Lord God formed the man... And every time you hear the word man in this chapter, it could be translated Adam, because that's basically the rendering in the Hebrew. It, Adam means man. Then the Lord God planted a garden. Uh, he formed man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called the Pishon, flowed around the entire land of Havilah where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onk stone are also found there. The second branch, called the, the Gion, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Asher. The fourth, fourth branch is called the Euphrates. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed the ground from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to the man. At last, he exclaimed, this is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife 
and the two are united into one. So a little context for this little text we read, Genesis chapter 1, the very first book of the Bible, details the, the account of six days of creation, and then we start into Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 2 is sort of a reiteration or an expansion of Genesis chapter 1 with a little bit more detail, which we just read. Genesis chapter 3, which we won't take time to read, tells the story of how humans disobeyed God on this order not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and how we fell into sin as a result and which is often called in theological banter the fall and lost our innocence and our place in Eden. So the big idea of Genesis chapters 2 and 3 is that God created the world and he made it rich with life and meaning and purpose. A wonderful place of safety and provision and community, a place with no loneliness. We sung about that this morning. I am never alone. You know, it's amazing how this is an important component in, in, in human experience. We do not want to be alone. And the Bible clearly states that from the beginning, God made us in community. It's not good for man to be alone. It's the only not good thing in the creation story. Everything else was good and very good, and then God said, no, it's not good for man to be alone, so he made a woman. No loneliness in this place. And even when we disobeyed, and there were dire consequences of this disobedience, God provided an answer for our failure immediately. He made a promise to Adam and Eve, he provided hope to them that everything broken and imperfect would someday be made new. So this Judeo-Christian view of creation is constantly challenged today. This is part of the thing that we live with in our culture, particularly Western culture, but some of these ideas are actually in all countries of the world. We saw this when we used to live overseas. In contemporary culture, it's hard to make a case for the Bible's account of creation, which we just read about. We're too conditioned to believe that our existence is the result of billions of years of evolution, started with a big bang. The insinuation of contemporary culture is that this, this incredible expanse of the universe has kind of made religious superstitions obsolete. American theoretical physicist Richard P. Feynman once quipped, I'll quote him here, he said, it doesn't seem to me that this fantastically marvelous universe, this tremendous range of time and space and different kinds of animals and all the different planets and all these atoms with all their motions and so on, all this complicated thing can merely be a stage so that God can watch human beings struggle for good and evil, which is the view that religion has. Here's what he wraps this little comment up with. The stage is too big for the drama. What is he saying when he claims that the stage is too big for the drama? For Feynman, it seems implausible that God could have any interest in the mundane activities of human beings on this measly little planet called Earth. How do we push back on that? 
I think what Feynman is really talking about is human insignificance. In this great expanse of unending space and time, how are we significant? The stage is too big for our little drama. Now, you might think I will disparage Feynman, but I'm not going to. What he says actually expresses a common human sentiment that if you and I are honest, we have had. Even as a Christian, with the feeling of being so small and insignificant in an apparent endlessly cold and heartless universe is common to every human being. We are naturally Without God's intervention in our lives, we are naturally disconnected from him. So these musings are normal for us. Does God care? Is he even aware of me and my struggles? Does God even exist? David wrote about this in Psalm chapter 8. He says, when I look at your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet, yet the Bible emphatically declares in the text we just read that God created this huge stage. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalms 19 says that these heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork as if to remind us of God's greatness, incomprehensible greatness and our need for humility. The Bible even tells us why he created the world. When David said, when I look at your heavens and the moons and the stars, what is man? The very next verse he says this, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. He asks a question, he answers a question. Lee Strobel, a journalist who found Jesus Christ and wrote several books, one of which is called The Case for a Creator, he observes that our solar system and the planet Earth parked in the middle of it is uniquely placed in the vastness of the Milky Way so as to give us what amounts to box seats to look at the universe. In other words, there's you know, when you sit in a theater and you sit behind some big guy and you can't see around him, you know, we're sitting in box seats in the universe so that we can easily look at the whole universe. It's almost as if God put our planet and our solar system in the Milky Way galaxy in a place where we can observe out into eternity. Was that all by chance? Arthur Rodney Stark, on another subject, he wrote a book called the For the Glory of God, says that the Christian faith, more than any other belief system in the world, many of which are afraid of the cosmos, 
has con contributed more to the advances, advancement of the sciences, sciences in almost every field than any other culture or religious belief in the world. Why? Because Christians believe God created the universe, that it was good. We're not afraid of it. He placed us in the middle of it, in this beautiful place called the Garden of Eden, and he gave us curiosity to discover it and understand it and name the animals. Christians are eager to go out. And historically, science and, and Christian belief was never at odds with each other. But if you really think about it, the, the vastness of space, you know, I was going to quote something from Han Solo from the Star Wars saga. All of you who love Star Wars, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do it. I don't have it written down, but you remember when they're, in, they're going down, you know, they're, they're flying between two places, going at light speed, and, they're, and they're, they're, you know, they're not in ice, you know, freezers waiting to arrive. They're playing chess with little living creatures, Luke and and the Chewbacca, you know, they're playing and they're talking and they're talking about the force and finally Han Solo said, look kid, he said, I've been from one side of this galaxy to the other and I've never seen some all-consuming force that controls everything. There's no thing that's controlling my destiny. You know, I'm like, sorry Hans. You know, I love it in the movie, it's a lot of fun, but I'm not buying it. <laughs> He was on some galaxy a long time ago, far, far away. We live in the Milky Way galaxy, and our Milky Way galaxy is, get it, 100,000 light years across. Now, for all you physicists, I'm not a physicist, but you know, I'm not very smart, but a light year is not the measure of time, it's the measure of distance, and it's the amount of distance that a light can travel in a year. And we all know light's pretty fast. It takes the light 100,000 years to cross our Milky Way galaxy. I don't think Han Solo is that old. But the vastness of space is not really the problem. The Bible actually says in Ecclesiastes that God put eternity in the hearts of man. So here's, here's a little quip for you. Let's pretend for a minute that you could actually travel 100,000 light years out into space, or let's say a million light years into space. And when you get out to the million mile, million light year mark, there's a big wall there. What's the first question that comes to the mind of every human being that arrives at the wall? Hmm. I wonder what's on the other side of this wall. We are kind of built with this eternity in our hearts. It never ends. We know that. A lady once insisted that the entire world, this planet Earth that we live on, is sitting on the top, on the back of a giant turtle. And a young man asked her, he said, so, what's the turtle standing on? And she said, don't try to do that with me, young man. It's turtles all the way down. The real problem with these questions, these existential issues, is that we are disconnected from the source. We've lost our way. 
And in that diminished ca capacity, we don't see things clearly and we have to put our faith in something. I believe that the Christian account of creation is the best explanation there is. We put our faith in a sovereign, benevolent God who created everything and he created it with love, with grace, with beauty, with meaning. He revealed himself to us and he placed us here for a purpose. This Genesis account introduces this idea of this wonderful God and his wonderful kingdom plan that's still unfolding. So today, quickly before uh, I want to try to get through this, we're going to look at four things. Number one, the miracle of creation. We started out with significance and meaning. Number two, the primacy of community. We started with intimate connections. Number three, the goodness of God's covenant, a promise that he would never abandon us. And number four, the hope of completion, that all wrongs will eventually be made right. So first, creation was a miracle. The kingdom, the Garden of Eden was like this beautiful place. Historically, it's speculated that somewhere in the Middle East, north of the Persian Gulf, around the borders of Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq, nobody knows part of the, part of the reason it's, it's lost. And even the, the rivers that are mentioned, only two of them still are flowing today, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And so, you know, Bible historians have tried to figure out where is this place. It's probably impossible to know, partly because Noah's flood wiped the earth clean. But it's still this Eden idea in Hebrew originally meant delight and enjoyment. Isaiah chapter 51 says, The Lord shall comfort Zion, he shall comfort all her waste places, and he shall make her wilderness like Eden. The desert like the garden of the Lord, where joy and gladness will be found. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. The memory of Eden still resonates inside the human spirit. If we're really honest, this idea of utopia, that the world should be better than it is, it still echoes in our hearts. It exists, I believe, in every human being, every culture, every religion. The Bible declares that Eden had this great beginning to creation. It featured rest and safety and provision and beauty, wealth with gold and onyx, diversity of plant and animal life, community and purpose, and boundaries. Or talk about boundaries. By contrast, evolutionary thought depicts the first humans as enduring incredible struggles for survival over millions of years where life evolved from primal goo to eventual complexity and diversity. It was not an easy beginning at all. Whereas the Bible says the garden over, was overflowing with life immediately, good life. No hunger, but fullness. No fear, but peace and harmony. No pain, health, safety, well-being. No death. Not even the animals died. All were vegetarians. No shame. Instead, innocence. Adam and Eve, it says, we're both naked and we're not ashamed. Secondly, community was primary in this place. God made Adam, he made man, and then he made woman, Eve, and he they, thereby created a community. And Genesis 2 spends a lot of time on this subject of community. Verse 18, it says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for or corresponding to him. 
There was intimacy. The sense of being made for each other was there. When Adam saw Eve, when he woke up from the night and one of his ribs was missing, he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The Hebrew word for man is ish. And the Hebrew word for woman is ish. Ah, oh, you know, when Adam saw woman, he was like, oh, finally, somebody that, you know, a whole lot better than all these stupid animals. <clears throat> Marriage began here. It's amazing. Marriage began here. The very last ver verse in Genesis 2 is referencing these realities. Therefore, because of these things, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become flesh, one flesh. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. There was this inference of intimacy, friendship, communion. It was a place of genuine shalom. But the Garden, Eve had, the garden of Eden had boundaries, too. Now, we think of boundaries as a wall or a fence, but there's another kind of boundary. Anthropologists talk about two types of boundaries. Uh, one, use this metaphor, one boundary is a fence that keeps the horses in. The other boundary is a watering hole that keeps the horses close. Can you picture those two? Different cultures define their boundaries in different ways. We in Western culture are very much about the bounded set, the fences. Other cultures are more about the centered set. The Garden of Eden was a centered set. God never told Adam and Eve not to leave the garden, but he placed at the center of the garden two trees, the tree of life, which they were allowed to eat from, along with all the other trees. So it, was a, it symbolized a tree of provision. He also placed at the center of the garden another tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which symbolized prohibition. The don't go there, don't do these things. Now, you know, this reveals certain things about humanity. Number one, the first and foremost thing it reveals about humanity and God's creation of us and being made in his image is that we are autonomous. We have freedom. We can actually choose to do something other than what God's will is. We weren't automons. We love freedom. We're not, we're not quite as fond of responsibility and consequences. Tim, Tim Keller talks about his children when they were little. They're all grown up now, but he, he references this as one experience he had with his 10-year-old. He said, he was very hard to get to obey. I would say, I'm your father. I told you to do this. Just do this because I told you to. And he would always ask for explanations and reasons. Sound familiar? Just tell me why. And I would say, if you only obey me when I explain it to you, then you are not obeying me. You are just agreeing with me. I want you to obey me because I'm 45 and you're just 10. I know a little bit more about life than you do. I don't want to have to explain it to you because I couldn't get it into your 10-year-old brain. So God says, don't eat of this tree. No explanation. I just want you to obey me because you love me. I just want this because I am God and you are not. Adam and Eve were clearly autonomous and they were able to think and choose on their own and we know how that turned out. <clears throat> Third, God's goodness after this decision, his goodness is revealed because he made a promise and a covenant with these two who failed. 
God has always known the risks associated with human autonomy. You know, knowledge is good, but it's also very dangerous. We have this innate sense that don't tell me what to do. You know, I get it. The serpent's deception was the claim that all knowledge is good. Therefore, if God keeps something from me, he is somehow doing me wrong. But the Bible isn't comparing knowledge and ignorance. The Bible is comparing not, no, not comparing knowing and not knowing. The Bible is comparing innocence with defilement. Safety with injury, life with death. Knowledge isn't just academic, it's experiential. It's better off not experiencing some things, not knowing them. We lived in Sri Lanka for many, we worked in Sri Lanka, lived in Thailand for many years in the middle of a civil war in Sri Lanka. And I remember Pastor Yoganathan living right in the middle of the civil war. He'd say, I pray all the time, Lord, don't let me see some of the stuff that's going on. Don't let me see bombed cars with dead bodies. Don't let me see people dismembered because of things going on. Because it defiles me. It takes years for soldiers to get over the trauma of war. They carry these memories with them for decades. We, I have friends and family who are in their 60s and 70s right now that are still getting over Vietnam. We have a medical term for this, PTSD. And those who've experienced trauma carry these things for the rest of their lives. Why do we shield children from grisly car accidents and from explicit and violent movies? We're somehow denying them their freedom? No, we're protecting their innocence. This is the point of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. John Piper says, our interest in the knowledge of good and evil represents a declaration of independence from God. When Adam and Eve ate of this tree, they were declaring, God doesn't decide what is good for me or evil. I am the decider. The root, of course, is pride. It's a buying of the lie that God is holding out on me, and I know better. At the moment of the fall, though, God made a covenant and a promise to Adam and Eve, and he says this to the serpent, the deceiver. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. She, he shall bruise, he, he refers to this offspring as he, not they. Who is he talking about? This is Genesis chapter 3. He's talking about Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Meaning the serpent will bruise Jesus' heel and Jesus is going to stomp on your head. This is a prof prophecy of the coming of the Redeemer thousands of years into the future, a direct promise that Jesus would be born of human seed, of human offspring for a redemptive purpose. And at Calvary, Satan bruised, bruised Jesus' heel in crucifixion when they put nails in his feet. And Jesus stomped on the serpent's head when he overcame death at the resurrection. Right from the beginning. <laughs> Finally, 
God gave us a future hope. So we've looked at the miracle of creation. We looked at the primacy of, of community. We looked at this good covenant that God made. And now finally, God gave us a future hope, a hope of completion of his plan. Not so much the end of the world. You know, we talk about the end of the world. That's called eschatology in biblical theological terms. But it's about the making of something new, the completing of God's plan. People may dismiss the Garden of Eden as a silly metaphor, but in reality it rings with truth. It shows God's power in creation. It shows his benevolence in creating community. It shows his kindness and his patience, even when Adam and Eve failed. It says they, once they ate of that forbidden fruit, they covered themselves with leaves because they were, their eyes were opened. It said, and they said, we're naked. They were ashamed of themselves. God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day saying, Adam, where are you? He, they hid. God, his kindness, his patience, even when they failed, he comes looking for them and he made this covenant promise of future redemption. No other human system or philosophy will ever transcend the power of Eden. We're still searching for Eden, if we're really honest. We're searching for tranquility, for safety, acceptance, community. We're searching for a better world. That hope still echoes in the human heart and in every human relationship. It's what we search for in everything we do. It's what we are looking for in every human connection. It's what every couple says when they get married. They promise to each other to make life better for each other. We desperately want everything around us to be right, for life to work, for life to be good. We want Eden again. And we know is somehow we're just kind can't quite get it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul calls Jesus the second or the last Adam because he came to restore what the first Adam lost. If Genesis tells us something about beginnings, then the life of Christ tells us something about the completions and the consummations that's in God's plan. In Matthew 19, verse 28, there's this amazing little scripture that Jesus quoted. As Jesus said, he said, I assure you, in the King James, he says, truly, truly, I say unto you, he says, truly once, you better listen. If he says, truly, truly, you better really listen. So the New Living Translation it just renders it, I assure you, when the world is made new, and then he goes on to explain a few things. Some translations say, when the world is made new, they say, in the new world. Another translation says, in the regeneration. The Greek word here is only used twice in the New Testament. It's palingenesia. Palingenesia. You can hear Genesis in there? Palingenesia. It literally means the renewal of all things. You know, Genesis was the making. This is the remaking of all things. This is not just comfort from past sins or wounds. This is not just duct tape and glue over something that's broken. 
This is not just covering over bad. This is total renewal. A total making new. At one point, if those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, um, you would maybe remember this little thing in the, uh, it was the uh, Return of the King, I think. Sam Ganji meets Gandalf after he thought Gandalf had died. And he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And then he says this, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? We ask this question about all our grief, our pain, our confusion. Why, will my struggles ever be gone? Will all this difficulty ever be over? Really over? Really gone? Not just covered over, not just comforted or medicated, but really gone? Will everything sad become untrue? And the miracle of Genesis, the miracle of the New Testament, the miracle of Jesus coming is yes. This is the Christian promise of Eden. Life started this way. Life will again be this way. This is God's kingdom work. This is God's kingdom at work. This is the wonder of his kingdom, working history towards something that will be consummated, completed in its time. It's the hope of that, the hope of regeneration. There will be no pain, no darkness, no evil, even no memory of such things. Good guys can come up if you need to. The last book of the Bible, Revelations 21 and 22, gives us a little insight of what this is going to be like. I'm going to read a couple scriptures. Chapter 21 of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. See, we got through the entire Bible in only 37 minutes. <laughs> Verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And then the angel showed me in verse chapter 22, the river of the water of life as a clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the, of the Lamb, see, commemorating the work of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The first world started with a garden. The new world will begin with a city. Both places have the same qualities. Both places are filled with life as God always intended it to be. So the question I guess for us as we wrap today is how are we supposed to get in on this? Be assured of this? How do we turn our own experiences from that which is broken to this Palin Genesea? Everything is made new. The answer of course is in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In the beginning, we walked away from Eden, and God has been looking for us ever since. The way back, the way to that complete palingenesia, as Jesus called it, where everything sad will come untrue is through Jesus Christ. The last, one of the last verses in the, in the book of the Bible is this, and I'll read this and then we'll close. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the Lord God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. There will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does not does what is shameful or deceitful, for only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me encourage you today as we pray. If you've never given your life to Christ, this is a great chance to do it. Get in on this, get in on this thing. <clears throat> and the way you do that is you just, you know, I tell people it's not complicated, it's simple surrender. Lord, I can't do it on my own. I've tried that one. I've tried this independent living. It doesn't work, and <laughs> I need you. Come on in. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful, Lord, for this amazing story from Scripture. You've never lost control, even though we went out of control. You never abandoned us, even though we abandoned you. You never turned your back, even when we did that to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for coming, seeking us out, looking for us and saying, Doug, where are you? Thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ who was willing to give his life so that we can get in on this renewal. You know, Lord, it's we live in this time, in this dispensation, as the Bible calls it, where there's still some struggles. Not every, the Bible says not everything is yet put under his feet. But our hope, Lord, is that you are in control of all things. And one day, one day, in that regeneration that you promised, all things would be made, made new and all the old will pass away. On that, Lord, we rest our hope that we place our joy that Eden will be restored and we thank you in Jesus name. Amen.